Hey everyone, welcome to the channel. Today we have Pyre Rashad with us. Pyre is a very known crypto personality and he is known as a Bitcoin maximalist and he has co-founded Nakamoto Institute and he runs the famous Noted podcast which gets regular crypto Bitcoin core developers and people working on core projects. And today we are going to talk to him more about how he views the current Bitcoin ecosystem, uh, what are his thoughts on altcoins, Ethereum, what are his thoughts on institutional interest and so on and so forth. So Pyre, thanks a lot for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Awesome. So can you like start from the basics and like give us a bit, bit of a background of how you actually got into crypto and how you like started pursuing Bitcoin as a career? Yeah. So uh, in high school, I got interested in monetary economics and uh, finance. Uh, and Austrian economics, especially. So that, that was like 2005. Um, I became a, a gold, you know, gold bug, hard money, sound money type person. Um, and I was very persuaded by their arguments that essentially government currencies are causing financial instability uh, and fractional reserve banking uh, itself is unstable, even when you have a sound money uh, using it. Uh, so... Anyway, uh, that, that interest in Austrian economics led to me uh, majoring in accounting at university. I got my bachelor's and master's in accounting at the, the number one program at UT Austin at their Macomb School of Business. Uh, I graduated in 2013. Uh, my last year of grad school, I met uh, Michael Goldstein and Daniel Krawitz, and uh, they were they had started a Mises circle or yeah, I don't, I don't remember the timeline. I, I, we need to write a book so we can establish the correct timeline, but basically it was like an Austrian economics uh, reading group. And uh, we were discussing issues like hundred percent reserve banking, fractional reserve banking, et cetera. Uh, and the topic of Bitcoin came up um, and we, to start, well, I, I started taking it more seriously. Uh, Daniel had already, you know, been involved in Bitcoin since a little while, uh, and and Michael as well. Um, and so I started researching it. Once I saw that the monetary policy was like only 21 million bitcoins, and I saw kind of the the creation rate of bitcoins is going to go down over time. Uh, that's when I became convinced that this was really the perfect monetary policy. Uh, and the fact that it kind of had a uh, organic and uh, fair distribution from the beginning uh, made me convinced that it was really going to take off both both from a kind of a sociological perspective, um, but also obviously from a price perspective, it was going to uh, increase in value over time. Got it. Um, Yep. Yeah, and then I so I graduated from college and then worked at Deloitte doing completely unrelated things. I was uh, auditing mortgage-backed securities, um, and then I uh, got a phone call from a recruiter uh, in Atlanta who worked for a company, a startup called BitPay uh, that does Bitcoin payment processing, uh, and that was a really interesting opportunity. So I worked at BitPay for about a year uh, in Atlanta, uh, and then I moved back up to New York City. I worked at a high frequency trading shop in their back office doing like uh, reconciliations with brokers and uh, accounting related things. Um, and dur during those two jobs, I really focused on learning as much as I could about software development. 
uh, I quickly realized that while I did have a valuable uh, professional set of knowledge from my accounting background, uh, the world of accounting was dramatically changing and becoming more and more automated. And a key part of that was, you know, software development, moving bits and bytes around uh, to, to make sure that the books bounce. Uh, so, um, yeah, I learned Python, I learned SQL, I learned C Sharp. Um, and then I got an actual software developer job at a startup here in New York called Axial. Uh, I enjoyed that a lot, learned a lot about front-end and back-end software development. Uh, it wasn't accounting related, but um, it was, it was uh, finance related because Axial was a, a platform for middle market companies to find investors, essentially. Uh, and yeah, in February, I left that job and started Bitcoin Advisory because I had so many people asking me about Bitcoin uh, and, you know, because of the price mania around it. So I figured, well, you know, I should charge them for my time <laughs> explaining Bitcoin to them. Um, and uh, then when I'm not uh, talking about Bitcoin or doing podcasts like this, uh, I'm contributing to open source software. Um, and my, my latest project we can get into is an Excel plugin for, for Bitcoin, for, specifically for Lightning, uh, because the world of finance runs on Excel and I figured they should have a very good user interface in Excel for accessing the Lightning Network. But yeah, we can get into that later if you want. Yep, yep. I think that is great. So you got in from a sort of like a libertarian and economics point of view, and then you moved into the technology of Bitcoin and the technical aspects. Um, yeah, that, that's right. And it's interesting because I think that everyone who comes to cryptocurrencies comes with a specific predisposition, a bias towards viewing it in one way or another. And so my bias was always about like the money and payments aspect of it. But there's people who come into it, you know, for example, I, had, I, I met a guy and he was, he was saying, oh, I want to use crypto for real estate. And I was like, well, is that because you currently work in real estate or do you have like an actual use case? He was like, no, it's, it's because I work in real estate and that's the only thing I can think about. I was like, all right, well, maybe, maybe you have a bias there and we, we all do. But I think that I got lucky because my bias actually makes sense for Bitcoin's use cases. Uh, whereas people who are trying to put like health records on the blockchain because their background is in, you know, health IT, uh, they, they might not be fitting into the right use case. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. Yes. Yeah, so like the, how did you start about Nakamoto Institute and like, how did you start about noted podcast? Yeah, so we started a website called the Mises Circle, where um, I started posting Bitcoin-related um, articles, and then uh, we had, well, all of our Austrian economics knowledge came from knowing about the Ludwig von Mises Institute, which is at Mises.org, and at some point, we were joking that like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have a Nakamoto, a Satoshi Nakamoto Institute? because there's a Ludwig von Mises Institute and uh, then it actually became a real thing. And, and Michael Goldstein spearheaded that he's the president of the Nakamoto Institute. He was, yeah, I mean, really it's, it's, I, I wouldn't call myself a co-founder because really it's Michael who's the founder and I just tagged along on his adventure. Uh, and yeah, we, 
we wrote more stuff. But the main thing that we did was, or that Michael did specifically, is create an archive of everything that Satoshi Nakamoto has written. Uh, and I think that that's valuable for people who are trying to understand how the Bitcoin system has evolved. Um, because there's, there's this myth that like Satoshi Nakamoto wrote the white paper and then Bitcoin existed and then it hasn't changed since. And that's kind of like, it's kind of a religious myth of like, oh, the Bible was written or the Quran was written and it's, you know, the official word from up on high and everything after it, you know, is like us trying to interpret it. Um, so the reality is that the, uh, it's, it's not really the, the white paper that matters. It's the actual Bitcoin network. And the Bitcoin network is decentralized. So there's no way that you can have it evolve in a specific direction that you want it to. Uh, it's going to evolve in a, it, on its own in an emergent way uh, according to its own properties and to the participants on the network. Uh, there's no way for us to enforce that the white paper gets followed. Uh, right? the, the only thing that matters is the code that is actually being run by the nodes on the network. Okay, makes sense. Um, so before we even dive into Bitcoin, right, it's uh, it's more important to understand the root cause of all evils, right, which is Keynesian economics and central banking. So, um, so my question is, what do you think are some of the problems with the, the, the traditional Keynesian economics and where do you think it fails and where do you think the Austrian economics comes into play? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think that like, when, when we boil it down, the, the Keynesian argument against a deflationary money. Um, so like the, the, the first argument is like, oh, well, people will not buy things today and consume because they think that it'll be, you know, better to buy it and consume tomorrow um, because the prices are going down. And so like, I think that that, that's that's a pretty weak argument because if we look at like what's going on in the computer industry, like hard drives are less expensive over time, uh, even in dollar you know value, uh, and yet people still buy hard drives because you ultimately you need a hard drive today. You don't need it tomorrow. Uh, so I think that 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 argument is kind of silly and not uh, not taken seriously by. Um, actual Keynesian economists, right? Like that's, that's more like people on Twitter who think that they are Keynesian economists who make that argument, but no real Keynesian economists would make that argument because they know that it's silly. Um, the real argument that they do make has actually to do not with consumer prices like that, but uh, with uh, workers' wages. And so he, this is the more nuanced and interesting argument that Keynesians make, which is that... Um, as the price level is falling, uh, you have to somehow get workers to accept a lower and lower wage in absolute, you know, terms. Um, in Sorry, in nominal terms. Whereas in real terms, like they're still making the same amount, right? They're, because they still have the same purchasing power. Uh, it's just that their hourly salary or hourly rate is, is going down in nominal terms. Um, and so their argument there is that there's stickiness and thus uh, you have a higher rate of unemployment than you otherwise would have uh, because workers are not willing to accept a lower wage until grudgingly they have to because that's the reality of the marketplace. So I, 
they're essentially making the argument that it's better that workers make less money um, than uh, for workers to uh, have, um, to, to, to make less money and have lower unemployment than to make more money and have higher unemployment. And I think that's actually, that's kind of a value judgment. Like, who, who are they to decide on that? I Like, it, maybe it's better that workers do make more money. Um, and that, that means that, like, you know, it, the, we'll have a higher rate of unemployment, but that's something that we can address either uh, through social programs if we have to, right, uh, whether they're voluntary or done by the government. Um, or, frankly, like, I don't even think that we would have unemployment be that much higher uh, if, with sticky wages in a deflationary environment. Um, I think that labor markets are actually getting more efficient because we have now kind of the gig economy of like Uber and whatnot, where there's a very granular um, way of compensating people. And we can get into like maybe Bitcoin adds to that solution with Lightning. Like maybe you'll get paid per... Uh, like Amazon Mechanical Turk, where you get paid per task. And in that environment, you don't really notice if nominal wages are going down. Um, and because you're, 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 you're renegotiating your wage on per task basis, not on an annual basis. So um, I, perhaps the Keynesian argument of sticky wages is going to become less and less relevant, even though like, I think that from the day zero, it was a value judgment that had, you know, it had like merit, but it, they framed it as some sort of like, no, this is the only way to see things, which uh, I don't think is, is the right way to frame the actual economic argument. Um, so that's that. Uh, there's other uh, arguments about deflation in the banking system. Uh, but basically what they amount to is that, yeah, if you have unexpected deflation, then the fractional reserve banking system does collapse onto itself. Uh, because people are no longer able to ser service debts, and as as they become insolvent or they um, you know default on their debt, uh, th the banking system becomes insolvent, and uh, you have you know contagion and it collapses. What um, I like that's that's true, uh, but to me that's an argument against fractional reserve banking. That's not an argument against uh, deflation per se. Um, and th that's that's where I think that they're a little off on on that. Right, makes sense. And then there's also the argument that um, Keynesian economics is um, is something that gives more power to the government because all that matters is the aggregate demand, right? So in order to like drive the aggregate demand, uh, governments start going on wars and like killing people and like spending so much money on on weapons so, just so to maintain the level of demand in the economy, right? Um, so, f like, ethically speaking, it doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, and, yeah, so, or was I, oh, yeah, so th the, the other thing, too, is that, like, we're going to see capital markets evolve due to Bitcoin. Um, so, for example, right now, like, our economy is heavily debt-based. Uh, I think that it'll move to being more equity-based. Um, and... Thus, you know, we'll have a, a smaller uh, banking system and a bigger uh, capital market system of, of equity. Right, because the power essentially gets transferred to the individual, right? That's what Austrian economics stands for. Yep, that's right. Awesome. 
Um, so moving on, right? So um, tell us about your experience uh, working on some of the newer things that are happening on on the Bitcoin network, right? So what do you what do you think about the Lightning network in general? And now we know that there are like different implementations of Lightning, right? There's Seed Lightning and there's um, uh, the the LND. So where do you foresee we are heading, and like what all efforts are being done to ensure that centralization doesn't come into play? Uh, yeah, so that's a good question. I, I think that um, I, I don't have a problem with centralization when it's about um, the the implementations themselves. So I think it would be fine if like there was only LND or only C Lightning as an implementation. Uh, the centralization that I would be concerned about with Lightning is if essentially we adopt a a model where the network topology is highly concentrated. And so basically, if you have one routing node stop, then all or a lot of payments on Lightning stop being able to be routed. Um, and so that's where we'll, the, the important part there is that we have people competing to be routing nodes. Uh, and I think that that'll happen naturally, uh, whether it's due to the fact that they want to be receiving fees from routing payments, or that they are running their own infrastructure as a merchant, and so their Lightning node is not only a routing node, but it's also a node through which they are receiving payments. Uh, and so they're, they're essentially, you know, they might not be making money off of uh, fees from, from routing, but they are making money off of selling goods and services and receiving payment over Lightning. Um, and the other thing, too, is that right now... Um, there's a, a, a feature in LND called Autopilot that allows LND to automatically connect and open channels to other nodes. And uh, I think that that will improve over time so that it actually does uh, have, encourage a quote unquote decentralized uh, network topology. But really what we want to have is like a highly scalable network topology, right? So that, um, we can have an arbitrary number of uh, nodes sending an arbitrary number of payments um, because people, it's funny because people like to talk about, you know, transactions per second. They're like, oh, my blockchain can do, you know, 5,000 transactions per second. It's like, all right, well, that's a hypothetical, you know, maximum best case scenario metric. And if you apply that same uh, set of premise to Lightning and you say, okay, well, what's a hypothetical best case scenario payments per second that you could send from one Lightning node to another? It's basically infinite because you're just, it's like asking like, how much data can I send between my laptop and my desktop computer? As much data as you want to. Like that's not an interesting question to be asking in, in this context, right? Because there's there's no upper bound, uh, you know. Once once you connect it with like a thousand gigabyte uh, Ethernet cable, um, and I think that's it's hard for people to understand that like the Lightning Network is is not a a broadcast global system like Bitcoin's is. It's actually um, it's more peer to peer than Bitcoin is uh, because you're sending payments peer to peer. Uh, you're not sending payments to all of your peers, you're sending it to a specific peer. Yep, yep.
um i i want to get a bit philosophical so in lightning do you do you feel that if lightning doesn't work out or uh, how important is lightning for bitcoin to succeed um yeah i think that's a fantastic question i i love that one um because on one hand i'm very excited and bullish on lightning and i think that it's going to succeed and do really well on the other hand i think that bitcoin could succeed without lightning and i don't think that it makes a huge difference uh in in the grand scheme of things um so really it's it's hard to explain but you know if if we think about like what's the worst case scenario for bitcoin uh i think the worst case scenario is basically what what safedina most describes in the bitcoin standard which is if we end up with a system where uh the day-to-day payments still have to be done through a trusted third party that is a bank that is then using lightning as purely a settlement layer um but it it can have like fractional reserve banking and all of this on top of it um and that that would not be a good outcome in my mind although it would be 100 times better than the current system right mainly because we've replaced bitcoin or sorry we've replaced the US dollar and the federal reserve with bitcoin and the bitcoin network and so like that's a huge improvement from a monetary economics point of view and uh safedine is correct to point out that like we're going to massively benefit from having a sound money in that regard uh on the other hand like it would be a missed opportunity that our day-to-day payments uh can still be censored or otherwise um you know tampered with by uh banks now i still think that uh if lightning network is very successful and we're all using it we'll still need to have banks because banks don't just provide payment services uh banks provide credit intermediation uh between savers and borrowers and so that that function of banks will still exist maybe it'll look different maybe it'll look more like peer to peer lending or maybe it'll look more like um a money market fund where you get uh shares in a money market fund uh but they try to keep it be stable versus bitcoin uh but it's very liquid and transparent uh so we'll see how that evolves but um basically i i think the lightning network is a cherry on the cake uh or icing on the cake uh but it's not the cake which i see as like bitcoin mm-hmm. and like can you share like you went to the lightning residency how how was that uh you wrote like blog posts covering what happened each day i'll, I'll link that down as well but still i want to hear from you like what interesting stuff did you see there yeah uh you know that was that was very fascinating and i would like to thank uh, chain code labs for hosting that uh really enjoyed participating in in the residency um so the there were a few really interesting well you know each presentation had like very interesting nuggets if i if i had to pick my favorites um I I thought that uh, Alex Bosworth and Christian Decker had some very interesting perspectives because Alex Bosworth with he he works at Lightning Labs and so he's most familiar with L&D. Uh Christian Decker works at um Blockstream and so he's he's been working on C Lightning for a while now and he's very familiar with C Lightning. Um and they are uh very different uh software architectures. and so c lightning is kind of more for 
a server type environment uh, and it's written in C, which is very low level and high performance. Uh, LND, LND can definitely be in a server environment as well, but I, I feel like it's, uh, AP, it's very rich gRPC API, uh, makes it for a good uh, lightning um, client uh, type node. So for example, if, if you're on mobile on iOS or Android, it would make sense to embed LND inside of your application to then uh, be communicating with the network. Although obviously like LND can also work as a server and C Lightning can also work in a client environment. Um, but when I look at kind of the architecture of them, uh, that's how I see it as breaking down. Um, and th I, I thought uh, Christian Decker pointed out that, you know, when we were just talking about the Bitcoin network versus the Lightning network, like the, the, the key difference between the two is on the Bitcoin network, you pay per byte, per unit of data is how you pay your transaction fees. And that means that you can have a transaction that takes up very few bytes, but is worth hundreds of millions of dollars because it's got, you know, it's, it, let's say it's, you know, a 5,000 Bitcoin transaction can take up as much space as a one Bitcoin transaction on the Bitcoin network. Now, on the Lightning network, that's not the case. And to send a 5,000 Bitcoin Lightning network payment, you are going to go through a lot of different channels and exhaust their capacity in that direction. And because it's a, it's a liquidity-based network. And so as you exhaust channels capacity, they're going to charge you more and more to route that payment. So on Lightning Network, you don't pay per byte of data, you pay per unit of value, per Satoshi. So the more Satoshis you're trying to route through the Lightning Network, uh, the more value you're trying to route through the Lightning Network, the more expensive it gets. And at some point, it makes more sense to send a payment through the Bitcoin Network with a fixed uh, you know, cost per byte uh, rather than a variable cost per value. And we can think about this like in terms of a like economic optimization. And we don't know where the equilibrium will end up between the cost per byte of on-chain and the cost per value of Lightning. Uh, it's going to depend a lot on um, variables that we don't know about today, right? Like what are the patterns of usage of Lightning uh, and both on the supply side of channel creators, of routing nodes, and then on the demand side of how, how do people actually, how much do people actually use Lightning to uh, buy their coffee at Starbucks? Um, and then uh, same issue on on-chain transactions. So uh, there's, there's a lot of open questions. I'm confident that the, the trade-offs like make a lot of sense and that we're going to see a uh, very good outcome, a very complementary uh, situation between Lightning and Bitcoin. And people are going to be very excited about the fact that you can send uh, almost free instant payments that are denominated in Bitcoin through Lightning. Yep. And like what sort of wallets and labs did you see like an improvement and people focusing on like building wallets, uh, some user facing applications that uh, like the users can try out Lightning? Yeah, so I think that's like, it's still an open question. Um, 
I think that, you know, we saw Satoshi's place that that kind of became viral as being an interesting lightning experiment. Um, I hope that we continue to see uh, experimentation in the video game era area. Um, and ultimately, though, like I think that lightning is going to get used to pay for things that we are already paying for today. Right. Like, I don't think that there's going to be an application where it's like, oh, this is completely unheard of. And it's uniquely enabled by Lightning, uh, and here we go. Um, so I think that the nice thing about Lightning is, th and just like with Bitcoin, is that it's a permissionless global system. So, for example, if you are creating a digital 3D art for video games, and you are in India, and you're doing this for an American video game company, they can pay you via lightning and you don't have to deal with remittances or anything, you know, like that. You don't have to do an exchange rate conversion um, and you can have it be paid where they're, they're paying you like, uh, you know, per unit of art that you're creating, which might be worth like a dollar each and they're, they're paying you for each asset. Um, so maybe it'll enable more global commerce like that, more global electronic commerce where you might not even be shipping a physical good or service. Uh, you're, you're shipping a digital good uh, and we'll see people getting paid for that. So Pierre, can you talk about like, what do you see as the biggest weakness for Bitcoin currently? Like, do you see that we'll have say a very terrible bug in the near time future or you feel that, I don't know, maybe we have mining centralization or what, what, what do you see uh, poses the biggest threat to Bitcoin's adoption? Um, so I think that we had a very big bug recently uh, that was an inflation bug and uh, it did not get exploited. And that's the only reason why um, uh, the, it, it wasn't as severe as it otherwise would have been. Uh, so that is definitely a huge threat. Uh, just generally speaking, um, the Bitcoin Core software project has to meet a certain level of reliability and robustness, right? Because it's a, a public uh, network node uh, and the consensus rules are uh, unforgiving in a sense. So um, the possibility of a bug being introduced into the code base especially one that was that's like an inflation bug like the one we just uh, were exposed to was that it really fundamentally undermines bitcoin's monetary policy right if there's a bug that creates new coins and we don't identify it and we don't uh, have a hard fork to fix it or uh, even having to have a hard fork to fix it is in my mind one of the most catastrophic scenarios imaginable uh, it introduces a lot it puts a huge stressor on the social layer of Bitcoin's governance process. And we want to avoid that at any cost. I, th I feel like that, that layer is already feeling uh, a good amount of social pressure, um, especially if we look back at 2017 with No2x and UASF. Um, so I think that we should try to minimize the um, uh, surface area of attack for social vectors and a, an inflation bug is bad in that regard. Um, so as for like other issues, I'm not, I'm not worried about on-chain scaling or anything like that. Like, I think that we, 
last year we doubled the capacity for on-chain transactions with SegWit. So mm-hmm. I think that like the track record is pretty impressive, impressive so far. And um, I, I don't think that the current state of the mempool justifies increasing the block weight limit uh, more. I think that with the next run up in the price that we'll see uh, more, more fee pressure in the sense that people send Bitcoins over the uh, Bitcoin network when you know, the price is going up. And um, that's going to cause an uptick in adoption of other scaling solutions like Lightning. Mm-hmm. And we'll see, we'll see how major that is. Uh, basically, we want to see like, what's the relationship between the Lightning cost of paying a fee per value and the on-chain cost of paying per piece, unit of data per byte. Um, so that, and then a government intervention, I'm not too concerned about either because it's really, it varies so much by jurisdiction. Like I know that in India, the government has been very anti-Bitcoin uh, and I hope that the Indian government gets punished for that. But uh, in a lot of other countries, the governments have been very hands-off. So I think that even though it's terrible for the people of India, for the people of China who have governments that are not, uh, you know, <laughs> thinking about the future and thinking about uh, the opportunities that Bitcoin presents. It's, 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 it's bad for, you know, people like yourself who might want to start a business and uh, start a Bitcoin exchange. And yep. starting a Bitcoin exchange has been a very profitable business around the world where it is legal, right? So yep. Coinbase, for example, uh, they just raised a round where they were had a valuation of $8 billion. Mm-hmm. So I think like that would benefit the Indian economy to have, you know, that kind of investment. That would be yep. a, a successful company. Anyway, uh, so I think the governments like in the US, they're not going to make it illegal because now there is a company that is highly successful, uh, you know, by profiting off of this and then they can go lobby the government. And not mm-hmm. only that, but you have a very large constituency of end users. And so the, in, a, in a functioning good democracy, like the, the government should reflect the, the wishes of the people. And in the United States, there's not a very large percentage of people who think Bitcoin should be illegal. Like, yep. They yep. might think that it's stupid and that it's not a good investment, but they don't think that the government should like make it illegal per se. They think that it's going to fail because it's stupid, not because it's going to be made illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a, a much larger percentage of people who think that Bitcoin should be legal. Um, and they're the ones who are uh, electing government officials. And, and also there's government officials who themselves have some kind of relationship to Bitcoin, whether it's their you know, granddaughter owns some Bitcoins and always talks about it at Thanksgiving, um, or it's that they themselves you know, have, have advised Bitcoin companies and have some on the side as well. And we actually, we, we saw a, a representative in the US, uh, she disclosed that she bought Litecoin. And yeah, I think yeah, it was I like- think Hawaii, yeah, in Hawaii. Was a, she was like a shit coiner. Um, yeah, yeah. Tulsi Gabbard in uh, Hawaii. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, we'll continue to see that and that's going to continue to be on brand. now. Here's how governments are going to attack, quote unquote, Bitcoin, because it's not a direct attack on Bitcoin. I think it's just a, a scam on their own people. Yeah. Um, 
is with ICOs. Uh, we saw the first government ICO last year uh, with the Petro in Venezuela. And I think that's the tip of the iceberg. I think that we're going to see more and more ICOs. And what we saw was on one extreme of the spectrum of bad governments, right? Like Venezuela is widely recognized as being a bad government. Uh, and then I think that we're going to see it go from like, Bad, outright bad governments to like sort of questionable governments to uh, normal governments to like liberal Western democracies. Mm -hmm. And eventually you're going to have like the government of Switzerland is going to do a Swiss franc ICO. So they're going to, instead of creating a new brand like they did with the Petro. So in, in, in Venezuela, they had to create a new brand because their Bolivar is like widely recognized as being a bad currency. So mm -hmm. it's not like that they can, uh, uh, you reuse that brand they had to create the petro but mm -hmm. with the swiss franc like you want to reuse the brand because it has you know decades of very good reputation from a monetary perspective from a currency trader perspective mm -hmm. so uh, i think that we'll end up seeing uh, from the worst to the best governments doing icos where essentially they and you could argue that that switzerland is doing an ico today except they're just not using crypto mm -hmm. because in switzerland uh, in order to keep their exchange rate from increasing too much, they go and issue new Swiss franc to buy equities, like global equities, uh, and to buy debt and to accumulate a financial portfolio that then they earn a return on. Mm -hmm. And so essentially Switzerland is like a very um, well-governed ICO, like with very good treasury management. And they're investing all of the seniorage proceeds into a globally diversified portfolio of equities. Now, if they did this issuance, they, they do this issuance through traditional financial system. They could do this issuance through an ICO token, uh, whether mm -hmm. it's on top of Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever is kind of <coughs> the best point. Um, yeah. And so like, I would consider those to be a scam, right? Because the problem with that is that there's no limit onto how much they can issue of this token. Uh, and also, I'm sure that the government officials participating in this would take advantage of the pseudonymity of it to give themselves, you know, pre-sale uh, bonuses for, for these ICOs. And essentially, you would see people cashing out and enriching themselves by creating scam ICOs with government, um, with government blessing and like, you know, the trappings and... Uh, the, the symbols of government uh, to maximize the amount of money that they raise and the amount of money that goes in their pocket. So I think that like, that's why even though I, I know that these ICOs are coming and they're going to be like huge, uh, I still think that they're scams and I still think like Bitcoin's the most interesting uh, part of this ecosystem. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, like, uh, we even actually, like a couple of us are working on a derivatives exchange and so on. And so like, we talk about things like say uh, the trading of currency like the forex trading that happens to goldman sachs and all these banks yeah. uh, i think that also that market will also be huge like say trading between currencies and settlement in bitcoin um, i don't know i think uh, with bitcoin we'll have a lot of new things that will happen like the global uh, market as well because of the global nature of bitcoin right um, yep yep um, so the next point we, I want to talk about is actually the, uh, key management topic that, uh, yeah. I had, we had like Jameson Lop last week, uh, on oh, the that's great. yeah, yeah. And he, he talked about his work at Casa 
um, and like how he views like say key building key management wallets for retail users um, and how, how that can happen. So have you thought about these issues? Do you, do you really feel that say key management and the problem we have with lost bitcoins, uh, it's a really big problem if we are like, if we want to go to mass adoption, uh, we need to solve this problem. Yeah, so I think that there's kind of two different problems within that. Um, one is for your long-term holdings, and the other is for like your walking around money for spending day to day. And I think that people tend to, whenever they see a solution that is less secure, like a mobile wallet or something like that, they're like, oh, that's bad. It's like, well... It's only bad if you are trying to save your entire you know, life savings on your mobile wallet instead mm -hmm. of putting it onto a different uh, a key management solution. So uh, we have to think about what the use cases are, what people's risk tolerances are. Like someone who is a millionaire doesn't care about having $10,000 on their mobile wallet. Like th that's, that's okay to them because like they can replace that money. Um, someone who is living paycheck to paycheck, they should not have $10,000 on their mobile wallet because that's a huge risk for them and they would you know, hurt their financial life much more. So I think that there's no like one size fits all solution. Uh, for some people, a, uh, a CASA type service or a multi-signature service like BitGo has is the good custody solution. Uh, and then for other people, Maybe they just have a web wallet with Coinbase, right? Like if you have, if you just invested $200 into Bitcoin, I don't see a strong argument for why you should like figure. So the only strong argument for why you should figure out how to get the money out of Coinbase would be so that you learn about Bitcoin, right? Like you should learn about what it is that you're buying. And so actually doing an on-chain transaction to a, a, a ledger wallet or a Trezor or even a, your desktop wallet or your mobile wallet, like that's, that's probably a very good learning experience. Um, and then like, really, if you want to take it to another level of like installing a full node and using the attached wallet to receive the payment that you are expecting from the exchange. So um, yeah, all, all this to say is like, I don't, I don't have one answer there. Of, uh, what's, what's a good solution for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, and some people are just not very tech savvy, right? Like they struggle with basic tasks on the computer. I don't know that they should be excluded from ever owning Bitcoins because we don't have a, a, a good practical way of securing the keys, uh, you know, absent a web wallet. So like, I'm okay with someone not being technologically sophisticated and using Coinbase or even like buying something like the Bitcoin ETF, right? Where now it's even more removed from it. Um, but if they're excited about Bitcoin, you know, as an investment and they think that its value is going to go up and they feel like the, the risk of them holding their own private keys is greater than the risk of someone else holding their private keys, like that's, that's, a, that's a decision someone can make for themselves. I, I don't see that as being like outright objectionable and we somehow have to force everyone to hold their own keys. Yep, yep, that makes sense. But still, like if you see, like if you think that... Uh, uh, we have hyper-Bitcoinization and um, say people have $20,000, $50,000 worth of money. Um, I don't know. I think I still feel that we can have better wallets with better recovery, better hot wallets. Um, yeah. That, and I, I think that if we look at the past nine years of Bitcoin's history, 
the trend is very clear that we're dramatically improving wallet software and hardware. So I think that like we're definitely on trend uh, with regards to uh, the different options available for people who have different preferences. Um, and you have things like the Glacier Protocol, which is about like how to make really, really cold storage uh, wallets um, and everything in between. So I think that that space is like dramatically maturing. Uh, the uh, Ledger and uh, Trezor, I've used both and they're just, they're, they're easy to set up and they're, they seem to be relatively secure based on people who have tried hacking them. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that like, there's definitely room for improvement. Like I think that in, in nine years, it's going to be even better, right? Like the, there's going to be even better things to come out. They're going to continue iterating on the products and improving the user experience. Um, but I don't see it as like an urgent pain point where Bitcoin's uh, growth is being hampered by the lack of quality wallets. Like, I, yeah. I don't think that's that's what I think what's hampering Bitcoin's growth is entirely reflexive price action and the psychology of price. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Uh, uh, yeah. Do you want to elaborate on that? Like, yeah, sure. do, yeah. yeah so uh, I, I kind of see if, if we took out uh, the fact that we're like social herd animals, and the fact that we have cognitive biases and if we just like removed uh, what makes us human and we replaced it with uh, perfectly rational automatons, then uh, the price of Bitcoin would just go up by a fixed percentage every day. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. And that that growth rate would be driven by the fact that uh, we have increasing levels of confidence in the, the functioning of the system. Uh, and so that would just be a linear uh, function with time. So that's kind of what I consider to be like Bitcoin's fundamental value is its age. How old is Bitcoin? Um, and that, th so layer on top of that, you know, there's kind of news type items like, oh, how, how good are Bitcoin exchanges? How liquid are Bitcoin exchanges? Uh, how quickly are investors learning about Bitcoin and then investing in it. Um, and you have other, other little factors like that. Now, I think that the biggest factor is that uh, humans are very social animals and are always uh, bathed in human emotions and constantly you know, going through the ups and downs of what that entails. And so when, when we have the baseline growth rate increasing, People notice it and they get excited about Bitcoin. Uh, and so the problem is then is that they tell all their friends about it and everyone piles in into Bitcoin at the same time. I say everyone, I'm loosely speaking because these are very small minorities, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, basically the, it happens as a wave of adoption, not as a steady trickle over time, which is what would allow for a steady increase in the exchange rate. So the we have during this wave, this wave is amplified by the fact that people see the price going up and then they expect the price to continue to go up. And so they go in and invest and that's basic momentum trading. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the, the momentum traders uh, cause the wave to amplify. And that's where the reflexivity of it is of the price going up attracts more attention, you know, on television or whatever, or from normal people who heard about Bitcoin before. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, more buying, and then that causes the price to go up more, right? So eventually, though, you run out of the marginal buyer, 
uh, and you exhaust the amount of demand that was in this wave of, of people. Mm-hmm. And that's when you get an unwinding of uh, momentum traders who now either they dump all their Bitcoins because the momentum is no longer there. Uh, they might even go and short Bitcoin because they see the momentum going in the opposite direction, right? And they want to profit off of the price going down. So um, you, ha- you have that effect. And uh, the psychology of people panicking, right? They're like, oh, I thought Bitcoin only went up. Uh, because it only gone up for 18 months and now mm-hmm. it's going down really fast and I'm, I'm scared, panicking. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're selling. Um, yeah, and so this, the, this process is also reflexive in the sense that um, people anticipate more selling and so they go and sell themselves uh, mm-hmm. and they're like, okay, you know what? I'll sell it at $10,000 and then I'll buy it back at $5,000. That way I avoid, you know, I can like double the number of Bitcoins I have doing that. Yep. Um, and so this is a reflexive process also until you run out of the marginal seller as you did run out of the marginal buyer on the way up yeah. Um, yeah. or you exhaust the marginal sellers. So when I look at today's market and if I look at uh, coin market cap today, we're, uh, you know, bouncing between $6,000 and $7,000 and it's actually looking pretty stable. So either like one plausible theory right now is that we've run out of marginal sellers mm-hmm. and we're at equilibrium between buyers and sellers. And so there's no reason for the price to move up or down, right? There are, there are many, as many buyers coming onto the market as there are selling. And so um, this is where like, I think that essentially the underlying fundamental growth rate that I was talking about at the beginning, um, the value of that, of that fundamental, the fundamental value is catching up to the price uh, every day. And at some point, the fundamental value will be greater than the price. And you can say, oh, Bitcoin's undervalued by uh, its, its market price. Um, I don't know. I don't know when we'll get there. Uh, arguably, maybe like we get there in a year or 18 months. And that's when like the bull market really starts again and people start momentum trading. Yeah, the, the, it's hard to have like two bull markets back to back. Uh, yep. We had that in 2013. It really takes a huge new wave of adopters uh, to do that. And maybe maybe we're on the cusp of that and it's on the horizon. Um, I haven't heard about it. I do see, though, like I do see a good consistent trickle of new people coming in mm-hmm. um, and they weren't part of the previous bubble. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how Bitcoin's liquidity and price evolves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like the next couple of months are really crucial. Uh, we, we personally, I, I also think that we might have a bear market for like say eighteen months, and like we can focus on building good stuff till then. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. And the other thing too is that in terms of onboarding uh, the next wave of retail investors, like mm-hmm. if if on chain transaction fees are going to be high, then we need to onboard them onto the Lightning Network. Uh, not onto Bitcoin itself, uh, onto the uh, settlement layer of Bitcoin. Uh, so th- that scenario where like, I think that there's room for innovation where I want to see exchanges starting to use lightning deposits and withdrawals so that someone who's just like investing $20 can do it pretty easily. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, so now I want to talk about like Bitcoin maximalism, which is uh, what you are known for. So. I just want to know that how, how do you view Bitcoin maximalism and what do you feel that like 
is the role of be of someone being a bit bitcoin maximalism in the crypto community uh, like you need do you do we really need someone that is reminding people that uh, this is bitcoin and like it has real use cases others are just like test bits yeah so that's a good question um i think there's a lot of different definitions of bitcoin maximalism that are like all over the place uh and there's a lot of bitcoin maximalists who strongly disagree with each other so it's like well how is it that they share the same label when they're like at their throat at each other's throats um so i i i don't really i don't think that the phrase bitcoin maximalist has um has held up very well in terms of being a useful descriptor of whether it's an ideology or of individuals or of a certain culture um what i think is broadly accepted is that uh well, I, you know, I, rather than talk about what's broadly accepted, I'm just going to talk about my own view on what Bitcoin maximalism ought to be um, or what it is to me. Uh, and basically, it's that in any sort of context of human commerce, of what, um, you know, what uh, the Austrian economists refer to as like Cadillacy of people trading with each other and in in that context there is a good that emerges as being the most liquid good and by what liquid i mean is that it's uh it's easily traded for other goods or services so whether it's like in the ancient world maybe it was salt you know and salt became the most liquid good and you could use it as a currency to to what's called uh you know in intermediate trade and essentially be a, a medium of exchange in the sense of someone receives salt they hold salt and then when there's an opportunity for them to spend salt in a way that they find profitable uh they go and spend their salt right so like that's that that function as a medium of exchange causes the good that we're talking about to increase in value more than it otherwise would have if we were just looking at the use value of of salt to preserve food or whatever um, functional uh, aspects of the underlying good has. So that increase in value is called a monetary premium. And the problem with a commodity that has a monetary premium is that the, the, the production costs will increase in order to match the uh, value of the commodity, right? So um, if salt gets monetized and increases in monetary premium, more people are going to dedicate more time to uh, you know creating a salt farms where they can uh, dry out ocean water and uh, you know get salt out of the ocean uh, so that you know now we translate it to gold in and frankly like gold started actually pretty a, a very long time ago like a millennia ago of uh, becoming a monetary good uh, so uh, it eventually got demonetized uh, or partially at least demonetized in terms of its day-to-day uh, -day use to facilitate large transactions. And it got replaced by the US dollar uh, like 100 years ago. So, or no, it's more like 50 years ago if I, if I look at it more reasonably, you know, Nixon closing the gold window, that yep. if, we, if we want to pick that out. But I, I would argue that like it really starts with World War II uh, and uh, the demonetization of gold, uh, people going off the gold standard during the Great Depression, yeah, I think, and like uh, it's mentioned, it's uh, explained very deeply in the Bitcoin standard. Yeah. So if, if yeah. you should definitely read that as well. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, and so uh, gold, which had emerged as the most liquid global good, uh, the was replaced by do U.S. dollars as the most liquid global good. And that almost fell apart during the 70s with high inflation. Uh, but Paul Volcker reestablished the credibility of U.S. monetary policy. And there are like institutional reasons why the dollar has emerged as being the strongest, whether it's uh, the, the structure of the U.S. economy and its kind of geographic location. And the, But I think that there's also the political institutions that matter. Uh, the U.S. has been a very stable democracy. It, it had one extremely violent civil war uh, during the 19th century. But other than that, it's actually uh, been somewhat functional, <laughs> especially on a historically relative basis. Like we we haven't had a serious coup d'etat where uh, a dictator, you know, emerged for a couple of decades. Like that's been a regular occurrence throughout the world. Um, and the U.S. has also not been invaded uh, since uh, I would argue like the War of 1812. <laughs> you know, like it's um, it's 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 territorial integrity has been unquestioned for um, and quite a few decades at this point. Uh, and it's it's the the way that it's laid out with the representative uh, Republican model of government of separation of powers between an executive and a legislative and a judicial and the independence between those three functions, uh, I think, set a very strong precedent for when the federal government uh, took over the role of um, being the the steward of monetary creation with the Federal Reserve. Um, the independence of the Federal Reserve, I think, has benefited from the fact that there's a precedent for having independent uh, functions within the government and having checks and balances. So, uh, you know, the Fed was created by uh, an act of Congress to provide a, a stable value to the U.S. dollar and, quote unquote, full employment. Uh, and it's taken that role somewhat seriously. Now, at times it has capitulated to political influence and that has had negative consequences on the credibility of U.S. monetary policy. But on a relative basis, relative to all other government-run currencies throughout the world, uh, there's, uh, the U.S. dollar still has the strongest track record. Um, and it is, you know, the, the, the other aspect of it is like, all right, well, that's still not as good of a track record as gold, right? Gold has a much better supply track record. I agree with that. The problem is that the problem of transaction costs. Mm -hmm. And when I say transaction costs, I mean in the broadest sense of the term um, of, for example, flying gold from the U.S. to Europe uh, or transporting gold from the U.S. to Europe. Transporting several billion dollars worth of gold costs you several million dollars uh, mm -hmm. to do. Like it's, it's a non-negligible cost to have final settlement of gold in, in the physical world. And versus having final settlement of dollars is that is much less expensive uh and that's why uh i think the dollar can have a strictly worse monetary policy than gold but still outcompete gold with regards to transaction costs in the broadest sense of the term and so the way i see bitcoin is that it wins both on monetary soundness of outcompeting gold in terms of its monetary policy and outcompeting the dollar in terms of its monetary policy, and simultaneously outcompeting the dollar in terms of its transaction costs in the broadest sense of that phrase. Uh, I don't mean narrowly like on-chain transaction fees. I mean, globally, what are all of the costs associated with sending US dollars uh, versus sending gold versus sending Bitcoins? And 
you know, those, those range from like censorship resistance. Uh, so being censored is a cost. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's a cost for people who use the US dollar to transact globally. And when they get hit with US sanctions like Iran, um, but other countries as well, uh, that is a real cost uh, to, to them. Uh, and so I think that like with, with Bitcoin, we can't just narrowly look at the cost of sending with a transaction fee. We also have to look at the benefits, the relative benefits it has to other uh, forms of sending payment uh, and of uh, storing value, right? So uh, I, th I think that even, even if we just look narrowly at the trans on-chain transaction fees, like today they're a nickel. Like they are just so small compared to uh, the benefit you get from using the Bitcoin network and from using uh, BTC as your, as your store of value, as your money. Um, it's, it's really amazing that you can have final settlement for a nickel, even if it is a billion dollars worth of Bitcoins. Um, and granted, that's going to change over time. And the cost of moving a billion dollars of Bitcoins, uh, especially if it's, you know, a lot of inputs and a lot of outputs, like, yeah, that's going to eventually, maybe it's going to be $50 or $100 or $500. But you'll see that on the Lightning Network to send, you know, $1,000 will still cost you like less than a nickel, right? And it's going to, I think it's going to be even le maybe less than a penny to move $1,000 on the Lightning Network uh, within the next 18 months, um, we're going to have that. And uh, the, the Lightning Network is, is maturing in its liquidity and in uh, its uh, reliability uh, as, as a payment router. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic that Bitcoin is going to continue to be competitive uh, and attract new adoption due to the fact that it has lower transaction costs and better monetary policy than gold or the US dollar. Okay, all this to say that from the framework of Bitcoin maximalism, uh, if Bitcoin is so competitive uh, with these existing status quo uh, players, then it's going to take a huge amount of market share. And people are like, well, don't you think that altcoins are also going to take market share uh, for, from the existing status quo? Uh, yes, they are. But I think that liquidity has a network effect where essentially it's a winner take most market. And the, the market for monies is driven by what is the most liquid money in tandem with what money has the best monetary policy and the best underlying payments infrastructure, because that will give us an indication of how future liquidity will evolve. Um, and so an altcoin would have to come along and offer a better monetary policy and a better payment system. I haven't seen one of those, and I don't know that it's possible. I, I really, I don't know that from an engineering and economic perspective that that's even possible. So already, I think that like there's just no way that a, uh, an altcoin can sustainably compete with Bitcoin over the coming decades. Okay, but still, do you feel that say we have Monero and a couple of projects like Decred who are working on governance and Monero yeah. working on privacy, like Bitcoin can actually learn from these uh, coins and integrate uh, on-chain uh, changes. Or, or, or do you really feel that, say, Monero will have a real use case as well um, and Bitcoin will be used by some people and Monero will be used by some other people? Yeah, plausibly. Um, I, they, I mean, there's going to be niche use cases for altcoins. Uh, you know, maybe it's also to like use a smart contract on Ethereum, right? But to me, the, that, that might add a little value to an altcoin. 
But what really adds value is people wanting to use it as money. Um, and if they're using it as kind of a, uh, a special access token in order to enable a certain feature, um, like for example, with the issue of privacy, like that's a pretty niche use case um, for for people who don't want to have their, their payment tracked. Now, then it's like, well, can they do it with Lightning? Because Lightning is much more private than uh, than Bitcoin is. And by default, Lightning is more private than, I would argue, than Zcash. Uh, and arguably more than Monero. Um, especially when we consider the fact that, uh, well, first of all, with Zcash, it's being able to verify the monetary policy. So you sacrifice that. And then with Monero, you sacrifice scalability. Now, they are making huge improvements uh, with the scalability of Monero. Yeah, but, they have bulletproofs, I think. Yeah. So I applaud them for that. And I think that's fantastic. I just think that the Lightning Network is a more scalable privacy solution. And really, like, when you get into it, I think that if someone is selling digital goods online, they're using, uh, and they're using Lightning Network, uh, they could have a completely anonymous experience uh, with Lightning or pseudonymous experience with Lightning where their payments are not publicly being tracked because they're getting paid in Bitcoin on Lightning. Uh, their good is being delivered digitally, so it's not like they have to use a mailing address or anything like that that would allow anyone to track them. They could sell it you know, through Tor. Uh, but it might just be like artwork for video games and they could be anywhere that has an internet connection, whether it's, you know, uh, Egypt or whatever, where they don't have access to international banking and international payments. Uh, and someone in LA in Los Angeles at a game studio can be buying their artwork from them, uh, through the lightning. And in Egypt, like this guy might, might be making a lot of money doing that and might be very wealthy and, nobody has any clue as to what's going on because he can just keep all of that entirely outside the eyes of the government and of his uh, family or anyone else. Okay. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, so to finish off, I'd like to like talk more about how, what your work with Bitcoin advisory and like, how do you see the current institutional interest in general? Um, like, do you, have you seen, like we have fidelity, we had an announcement, a um, couple of other announcements that have come up in this year. So how, how has the institutional interest grown? And like, what's, how do they actually view this? Uh, like, how do they view Bitcoin? Do they view Bitcoin as like, they want to have a store of value? They want to put yeah. their money in? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, uh, to answer your last question first, um, I think that they, they as a population view Bitcoin the same way that the rest of the population views it proportionately, right? So... By that, I mean that most of them agree with like Janet Yellen and Nouriel Rubini and the, the other what I call no coiners that uh, this is basically tulips. It's a bubble. It's driven by uh, too loose of Federal Reserve monetary policy. And so uh, easy money is pumping up uh, a, 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 a scam or a Ponzi scheme, a, a bubble. So that's how most of them view it. And uh, that's how most of the retail investing public views it as well. Now, at the edges, we have an increasing percentage of people, and it started at 0%, and it's been increasing from there, of people who view Bitcoin in a more sophisticated manner than just as uh, tools. And they kind of understand, okay, this is turning into a real uh, global uh, settlement currency 
that it's going to continue to accrue value over the coming decades. And its adoption rate, while it is very volatile, its adoption rate will continue to be positive. Uh, and thus, we can expect the value of Bitcoin to go up. So like, that's a very small percentage of people, both among retail and institutional investors who view it that way. Um, now, I also think that um, if you look at if, if you look at Bitcoin uh, as a kind of a sales funnel, like I think that people start as retail investors and a certain percentage of retail investors also work at financial institutions. Mm -hmm. um, or the other thing too is that the retail investor population uh, has overlap with the institutional investor population. And so for example, ultra high net worth individuals or, uh, or family offices are arguably both very high-end retail and institutional, right? And family offices are generally viewed as being institutional investors, even though like some of them don't really have the sophistication of, of an, an institutional investor. But, you know, they're at, and they might be in an advantage because they are running their show and they don't have to answer to a, an all-powerful investment committee that is stuffed with 70-year-old guys who are you know old white men, <laughs> uh, but they're not friendly to technology at all. Uh, and and if they're thinking about a store of value, like they're thinking about gold, not about uh, uh, beanie digital beanie babies, is like they might see it. Um, so uh, the the and and then you have high net worth individuals who are limited partners in other ventures or hedge funds, and they might be interested in investing in crypto funds uh, and. We've seen that, like, the, 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 the most we've seen that of was Yale's endowment fund uh, becoming a limited partner in a crypto hedge fund. And so that, I think, is like the bleeding edge, the leading sphere of institutional adoption was, was Yale. Um, but, you know, they're, they're the first of any substantial university endowment. And I think that they're ahead of the curve on this. That's pretty impressive. Uh, although, you know, we can debate about crypto hedge funds and whatnot. Um, but yeah, so this is the tip of the institutional iceberg. Uh, now, is, is it the case that the next bull market depends on institutional investors? No, I don't think so at all. I think that Bitcoin is going to continue to be deeply driven by retail investors. And uh, really, I, I, I see the, the folk hero of Bitcoin is the person who every two weeks when they get their paycheck, they put $100 into Bitcoin. Like, that to me is is what this market is continuing to be driven by, um, and then we'll see uh, as the momentum traders come in. They're going to be retail momentum traders, but yeah, it's true. We're going to have institutional investors come along as well. Um, it's just not like uh, they're not going to be driving the initial demand. I don't think they they might just come along for the uh, the momentum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think we have covered quite a lot, Pierre, uh, in this interview. Uh, I really want to thank you for taking the time out. We had to do the episode in two cuts. Um, but still, I think we did talk some, we did cover quite a lot and we talked quite, quite a few interesting topics as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I appreciate you having me on. And uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, talking again. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Uh, for, for people who want to follow me, uh, I'm at Pierre, P-I-E-R-R-E -R -E underscore Rochard, R-O-C-H-A-R-D. I co-founded the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute. So go to nakamotoinstitute.org. 
Uh, I've written quite a few things on there. I've written things on Medium as well, so go check that out. And I co-host the uh, Noted Bitcoin podcast with Michael Goldstein. So go, yep. go to noted, N-O-D-E-D dot org and check that out. Yep, everything is linked down below. Awesome. 